welcome to the Weird Warriors podcast. I'm Max. I'm Rich. And on this podcast, we will be discussing the Weird War Tales comic series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. And on this episode in particular, we're going to be looking at Weird War Tales number 10. But before we do, Rich will start us off with our retroactive history segment. Hey, one thing about listening to our podcasts after the fact is that it reminds me to go back and check things we talked about checking that I actually hadn't checked yet. Check. So, without further ado, number one. So how many Weird War tale covers did Joe Kubert do? Of the 124, he only did 52, less than half. Orlando took over issue 8 and Kubert checked out completely. Hell, we won't see him again until issue 36, which is a bonus-sized, mostly reprint issue of stories we've already covered. He pops in and out fairly regularly after that. Check. Number two. In episode one, the question was raised how the story behind the cover of Weird War Tales 1, go see the photo on our Facebook page, was reprinted in Sergeant Rock 401. I pulled said issue and checked. It's now called The Untold Story and is otherwise an exact reprint. Kind of a letdown. But not surprising. But hey, the Sergeant Rock story is called Visitation. A visitor from outer space drops in on Easy Company and watches man at his best and worst in the middle of a war. That's weird, isn't it? Check. Maybe we just found a possible future special mission. Hell, we have to get Rock in here somewhere. Check your gear and move out. Yeah, we absolutely uh, will be doing at least one Sergeant Rock story. And heck, you know, if, if we feel like it, we'll just do some Rock anyway because it's war- horror, both, or either that we'll cover. So yeah, whenever you feel like doing rock, man, just just ring the bell, we'll do it. Now, for my part, I have a minor retroactive history, more of like a confession of a mysterious brain fart. For the past two episodes, I've been referring to artist Frank Springer as though he were Frank Robbins. No idea why, but there you have it. That's how my brain was misfiring. Two very different artists, and they both named Frank, and so I just kept right on talking about him like he was Frank Robbins. So that's the kind of accuracy you come here for, folks. Before we dive in to Weird War Tales number 10, we are going to take a short podcast promo break, and after that, we'll get right into it. Attention, attention all personnel. New from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, it's MASHCAST! Hosted by MASH megafan Rob Kelly and a rotating cast of VIPs, MASHCAST analyzes, episode by episode, the greatest television series of all time, MASH! Find MASHCAST on fireandwaterpodcast.com Jocularity! Jocularity! And we are back looking at Weird War Tales number 10. And Rich is going to hit us with the cover detail for this issue. It's the 10th great issue of Weird War. Art by Nick Cardi again. By the light of a full moon that's split by a castle tower, a U.S. paratrooper is hung up by a chute on rooftop gargoyles perched atop an adjacent tower. In the tower window immediately to the trooper's front, he is horrified to see the ghost of a French swordsman that looks like he would fit right in with the three musketeers. He's holding his epée as if he's about to run the American through and has a look on his face like he would like nothing better. This was released January 1973 on sale November 9th, 1972. And I will just go in with my famous nitpicking and say, I look at the paratrooper 
And Cardi got so much of it right. The helmet chin strap, the M3 grease gun, the extra magazines on his belt, the empty parachute pack fluttering on his back. And then right there in the foreground, he has the trooper not wearing jump boots, but the fur-lined boots a bomber air crewman might wear. The boots don't even have heels. They're flat-soled. Airborne, love their boots, Cardi. Can't be doing that. <laughs> yeah, what can you say? Just uh, at some point, the accuracy goes out the window and the cover's got to get finished. <laughs> Who knows? But uh, yeah, another detail that would have slipped right by someone like me. I was just taken by how great the cover was. So I'll, I'll take that and go right to comments and commendations. And I'll say, like I was referring to, this is a much more typically flawless, get out of here with your boots, Cardi cover. I will call out in particular how Nick Cardi creates the illusion of depth here. It's just really cool. The foreground figures and structures are highly detailed and the background structures are almost completely reduced to silhouettes. It like implies not only distance, but darkness and perhaps even a pervasive mist in the air. It's just such, it's such an excellent cover with like this, this image of atmosphere and this, again, this sense of depth to it. And I was just, completely grabbed by this one it, it didn't have any of the um the weaknesses i found in the previous cover or the one glaring weakness nothing was drawing my eye away or bugging me at all i could have just looked at this cover for minutes on end it was really cool this is the kind of thing that comes to mind when i think cover by nick carty loved it well i'm not a hundred percent sure that he got the comparative angle right I have full appreciation that Cardi got the moonlit shadow of the trooper on the walls of the castle. He even got the angle changed in the castle window where, where the, the, the bricks move in at, at, a, at a 90 degree angle. That was a nice touch. That's the kind of thing I probably would have forgotten, actually, if I was drawing a cover. But hey, that's why I don't draw covers. So anyway, onward. Yeah, from now on, uh, we're going to have Rich do his version of every cover and post it on the Facebook page, right? That's what we're going to do? Yeah, because I got all kinds of time for that. Yeah, excellent. Okay, so that's official. <laughs> and uh, after this awesome cover, and we'll talk about this maybe a little more at the end, but we go right to the first story in the issue because there is not even an attempt at a framing sequence in this issue. So we go right to Who is Haunting the Haunted Chateau? Script by Sheldon Meyer. Art by the amazing Alex Toth. And the synopsis is as follows here. It's the cover story. A crippled B-17 with only two survivors aboard limps over a chateau on its way home. Knowing they're not going to make it back, the pilot, Captain Towers, orders the gunner, Sergeant Herbie Lang, to bail out. Lang hesitates because he heard the chateau is haunted, so Towers suddenly banks the plane and throws him out the hatch. Fast forward 10 years, New York City. Lang and Towers run into each other in the after theater crowd. Lang introduces the captain to his wife, Cecile, who he met at the haunted chateau. They go to a restaurant to catch up. Towers had been captured after crashing the fortress. But we flash back to see Lang's chute had hung up on the top of the chateau as was depicted on the cover. In the act of trying to swing into an open window, a ghost dressed as a French swordsman greets him. At that moment, his chute rips, and Lang falls to a landing beneath him and is knocked out. He wakes up in bed in a nightgown with Cecile kneeling over him and freaks out when he finds out he's in the haunted chateau, especially when the ghost swordsman shows up. That ghost is Gaston, a Frenchman playing a role to keep the Germans at bay. Knowing a German shelling is due, 
Cecile tells Gaston to take Lang below. He carries Lang into the basement where seven other allied airmen are playing cards. As the shelling starts, Lang realizes Cecile isn't with them and runs upstairs to look for her. A ghostly, eh, woman's voice tells him to go back downstairs, but Lang ignores it. He's surprised to discover a painting on the wall of a woman that looks just like Cecile, but she died in 1631. The voice keeps imploring Lang to seek shelter, and Lang keeps ignoring it as the shells impact closer. He hops on a bike to track her down and rides right into the German artillery unit. When the officer in charge pulls his Luger on Lang, the pistol flips toward the officer and fires, narrowly missing the officer. Artillery shells start to levitate, and Lang is suddenly pedaled away on the bike's handlebars with no one in the seat. Cecile suddenly appears behind him, and they return to the chateau where Lang begs her to marry him. She demurs and has Gaston get the airmen out of the chateau through a hidden passage to go to the coast. On a French fishing boat, taking them to England, the other airmen tell Lang that Cecile is really a ghost, constantly foiling the Germans' attempts to attack the chateau. Returning to 1954, Lang tells Towers that he went back that very night to France to marry Cecile. Towers scoffs, asking him how he could marry a ghost, and Lang reveals that the fishing boat had been attacked by a German e-boat, and he had been killed. Towers bursts out laughing, realizing he'd been the victim of a tall tale, and orders another round of drinks for his friends. When the waiter questions, friends? He looks back to see Lang and Cecile were gone. And although the glasses were half empty, the waiter insists Towers had been alone the entire time. A puzzled Towers leaves, and in the last panel, two champagne glasses levitate and clink. There we go. That is the end of the first story in the book, and it was a doozy. But of course, Rich does have some Killjoy Was Here comments. Oh, come on. It wouldn't be... Uh... Wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't find something to frickin' nitpick on, right? That's why I'm called Killjoy. See, the pilot tells Lang to bail out and he balks because they're flying over the haunted chateau sector. You two are the only survivors out of ten men. Your four-engine bomber is barely aloft on two engines and you're losing altitude. Look, there are countless examples of guys refusing to leave doomed aircraft and leaving their buddies behind. So many of them died because of it. But this... I'll take my chances of the ghosts down there, thank you very much, before I come on myself. Geronimo! (laughs) That's not so much a killjoy as, uh, you know, what would Rich do? Yeah, what would Rich do? A little bit of realism, come on. We'll do do like WWTRD, what would Target Rich do, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I I agree, man. The other dude is flying this plane that's likely going to crash, and he's saying, hey, you can jump out right down here, and there's even a structure nearby. I'm out. I'm jumping out the plane. So I'm with you. And for comments and commendations, you got a bunch to say. So I'm going to let you lead that off too. This, we've talked before about what was the first issue of Weird War, you know, that you got. And I have to remember, I don't remember which the first actual issue was, but this is the first one that I remember buying. I remember it because it was the first comic I'd ever bought that had, that had been autographed. Alex Toth, uh, right on the title page of this story. You know, whoop, you know, my favorite sequence in the story is when Herbie wraps up his story to the captain by telling him he'd been killed 
by an enemy boat and the captain laughs thinking about, you know, Lang and pulling his leg. I find it kind of relatable. You know, more recently, crazy outlandish military stories can often start off with, no shit, there I was. You know, you're in it up to your eyeballs and somehow need to make a miraculous escape to survive. I saw it done in a movie once, but I can't remember which one. He's got the, the new guy on the hook and left him dangling on a cliffhanger. And the new guy asks, how'd you get out of that one? And the story we ever gets all shocked and replies, I didn't. I was killed. And everyone else, blah. And this new guy realizes he just played and laughs a lot. <laughs> but uh, also rereading it, you see the waiter act surprised when, when Towers asks him for three drinks at the restaurant when he gets there. And now you know why. I thought that was a really neat little touch. You didn't catch it right away. You go back and you reread it. You're like, ah, that's, I, see, I see what he did there. That's, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that was a neat bit of foreshadowing. Um, <laughs> when you look at the story, the waiter's like three drinks, you know, and, and you, you see the three characters right on panel. So you're not sure why the waiter is giving a little bit of attitude, but you're like, eh. Waiters. So for my part, the art in the story is, of course, incredible. It's Alex Toth and everything that makes him Alex Toth is on display in this story. It's, it's just great. Specifically, though, I'd like to focus on the wide range of tones that Toth is able to deliver throughout this 10-page tale. We go from gritty airborne action to a creepy gothic atmosphere to outright comedy with the bicycle scenes, the German officer shooting his own hat and so forth, and even to a night on the town in a bustling New York City in the 50s. All of it looks fantastic. Every bit of it works together without so much as a hitch. This is why people talk about Alex Toth. It's, it's effortless. You don't even notice how he's juggling these different tones and scenes until you step back and analyze it because it's just so smooth. So there's that. The only nitpick that jumped out at me is on page five when Gaston is carrying Herbie Lang down the stairs in the chateau. Either Herbie is suddenly the size of a child or Gaston is like nine feet tall. I, I mean, I guess the other pilots did say it took a ton of flour to make Gaston look like a ghost. So maybe he's just, you know, Andre the Giant's father or something. Andre, I think, was of French descent. Could be. That's the only thing I could find that was even close to a nitpick. This story was a huge winner for me. I, I love the tones. I love the art, the twist at the end. This was the weird war that I remember reading from when I was a kid. Given that, we'll see if we strike gold again, in my opinion, with the second story, and Rich is going to take us there. And The Room That Remembered, script by Raymond Marias. I think I said that right. Art by Frank Redondo, here credited as QR. Synopsis. Commander Roizen runs a concentration camp, and although he puts on a great front for his men, he knows the war is lost. As such, he keeps a secret stash of looted Jewish treasure buried in his office instead of adding it to the Third Reich's coffers. A sudden American attack cuts him off from his office, and although he tries to escape by switching uniforms with a dead guard, He's captured and sentenced to 25 years in prison for crimes against humanity. Released at the end of his term, he returns to where the camp had been to discover an office building had gone up in its place. Finding a job as a janitor, he goes into the cellar, dreaming of the riches that await him. Clearing away the debris of his office, he's attacked by a horde of ghostly figures that demand his treasure belongs to the dead. Fending them off with his shovel, Roizen digs through the floor and unearths his treasure. His insane laugh fills the basement, which his bosses upstairs hear. They run down to find Roizen kneeling in an ordinary basement, holding nothing, 
and babbling to himself about his treasure. He's obviously mad. That was just so cool. So Rich actually has no killjoy on this one. So mark that down on your scorecard. It happens and once or twice a year. It does, you know. <laughs> and for comments and commendations, I'll jump in. Art in this was, again, I'm just, Weird War has such a great track record with artists. Even if I haven't liked a story, usually the art is there to make me a happy guy. The sheer level of environmental detail in this art in particular made the story very immersive for me. And it made it all the stranger when the reality started to go off the rails at the end. I mean, I really liked the final panel as it became so apparent that no part of the Royson version of that room with the ghosts of the dead and the treasure and all that was real at all. I mean, was he using the broom you can see behind him as his shovel when he was digging up the treasure in his mind? It just made me really think back to what his struggle against the ghosts and his digging up of the treasure must have really looked like if there had somehow been like a camera in that room to see this man just flailing around with a broom digging at the floor as though he's making progress and then having some battle when no one's in there it just made you think back to what those scenes must have really looked like and i i love that touch again this was a classic twist ending horror story in the vein of creepy and eerie magazine that i grew up reading so high marks for me i have nothing nothing negative to say at all about this one uh frank Redondo did so much of the art in the Sergeant Rock comics that I was pulling off the rack when I'm in my youth. For me, he was my original rock artist. Big fan. He's another artist I haven't met yet that I would really like to. His work here isn't as refined as it would be in about another decade. My favorite panel is the one where Royzen finally gets to where the treasure is buried. They left it as it was. Yet smoke is still curling from the wreckage with two fresh bodies mixed in and a tilted picture of Hitler on the wall. Were you in prison for 25 years? There's no way that scene is kosher, pun intended. This was my first, hmm, moment. Where's this going? So yeah, two thumbs up. I really enjoyed this story also. Yeah, that panel you talked about right there, that was, again, I talk about the immersive quality of, of the environmental detail. And that is drawn so matter-of-factly where he's stepping into that room and you see that it looks like it did back during the end of the war and it's it's just rendered as though oh yeah this is completely normal and it it hits you it hits you all with with even more intensity because of how matter-of-factly it's drawn it's not done like a huge reveal it's just a normal size panel but all of a sudden you know uh oh something's up here yeah perfect it's just another great freaking story in this issue so um we've we've done the first two stories and as it usually is placed we're coming up on the letters page people the apo weird war tales page and rich is going to hit you with his highlights from this issue's letter column okay everyone loves hate mail jeff clover of trenton new jersey thinks weird war tales 7 stunk the stories really smelled. Here, I'll read directly from the letter. Flying blind was stupid. You really expect any person with half a brain to believe a guy flying an airplane blind, and you try to tell us his whole personality will change because of that. Garbage. Thatcher probably would have run into the ground if he were really a blind pilot. Uh, why, yes, as a matter of fact, uh, I, do, I do believe it. Ask, uh, ask Kenneth Schechter. Moving on. The second story, the 50-50 war, wasn't much better. Only good thing about it was the art. I like Kubert's drawing, even though he does get a bit sloppy at times. I have read your war books for years, and this is the type of story that is the same garbage you've handed out issue after issue. Always start with the GI as a kid, show his pet like or dislike, and then turn it on him during the story and have him defeat it. 
bah, garbage. That third piece of puke was the three GIs. Talk about standard plots. My lord, how could you allow such a piece of garbage to be published? <laughs> I mean, I find it funny that he bags on Alex Toth early on in this letter, and then they put this letter in an issue where Toth had more work in it. <laughs> this guy just, just like throws it all, you know, all out there for everybody to see. And uh, Joe Orlando comes back and says, we think you were unduly harsh in the stories in Weird War 7. And rather than defend either our stories or our policy, I hope you will find this issue and future issues more to your liking. And then he just comes out and says, what type of stories would you readers like to see here? More supernatural or more war? But yeah, this this was like the, probably my, my favorite letter that I have seen like in any issue so far because he was he just had his guns out <laughs> coming after coming after dc <laughs> yeah jeff clover missed his uh his era man because that letter read like an internet comment section from today it's just like you know level uh, utter vitriol and bile and everything is the absolute worst and there's no nuance at all it's just venting his spleen and i'm like hang on did I actually get onto a web page here or am I reading a letters page in an old comic? I, I, I love Orlando for printing that letter and for his incredibly calm response to it. Just, oh, well, we think you're being a little harsh there, Jeff. And, you know, maybe, maybe you should go get something to eat. You know, like, get a nice warm glass of milk. <laughs> yeah, man. Like, so a great, you know, great that they printed it. Entertaining as heck to read. But of course, I, I, I'll, as a counterpoint, I preferred, let's say, the more positive, less unhinged, but still not totally fawning letter from Art Stampler of Brooklyn, New York, which starts out with Dear Joe, your latest issue of Weird War was tops. I read in etc that you were planning an all-cripple issue, and I thought you were kidding. But it came out, and it came out great. First thing I loved was the introduction by Joe Kubert and Marv Wolfman. It was really nice seeing Joe drawing a war story again. I like Tarzan, but Joe was tops at war. Marv's script was very good, too. The ending should have been expected, because all the stories had blind people in them, but still, I was shocked. I really thought that soldier hadn't been wounded. When I reread the story a second time, I noticed that you had planted all the clues that he was blind in the script. Clues like, I can hear them instead of, I can see them. All in all, a good story. The 50-50 war was the best story. The idea of having the blind guy on skis was great. It was both different and exciting. The three GIs was nothing special. It was a standard type of war story of several years ago when Conagher was in charge of them. Flying Blind was exceptional. Here we had a well-thought-out character and one I really cared for. Usually in the war stories, we just meet people and then they are gone, and I don't really care if they live or die. Which is wrong. War is hell, and you should care for the soldiers. If you don't, you make war seem impersonal and therefore not important. I think stories that show the people as the most important part of the war should be published. Maybe then we will realize that people die and that is really the bad thing about war. Sorry to ramble on like this, but I felt I just had to say it. I'm sorry to see you go, Mr. Kubert, but I'm sure Joe Orlando will, as you said, make the book soar to even greater heights. In the words of someone or other, thank you and good afternoon. See, that is a much more mentally balanced fan. Clipped on one of the stories, talked about why he liked it. This is like an informed response with, with actual opinions. But again... They don't make uh, them like that anymore. Yeah, exactly. They don't make them like that anymore. <laughs> and and I wouldn't have enjoyed this uh, letters page as much without Jeff Clover's comp- 
completely unhinged rant following that right up. Like you start off with Art's letter and then you have Jeff going, get out of my way. I got something to say here, you know? So very cool letters page as usual, uh, if not even more so. After that, we're moving on to the third story in the issue, which is called Cyrano's Army. Script is by Len Wein. Art is by Walt Simonson. This issue features Walt Simonson's first professional published comic book work. And what's that, Rich? I got it. <laughs> <laughs> now you have it. Did you have him sign it yet? Yes, indeed, I did. I got it. That I, He was at a, show, a con I was going to. I was just flipping through the books, you know, my, my big five index, everything else like that. I'm like, hey, Walt Simonson did a war book. Great. And then I find out what I, what I just put in the script that it was his first professional published comic work. I'm like, oh, hell yeah. He's signing this. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. That's great. That's great, there'll, man. There'll be there'll be a picture. There's a, there'll be a picture of it on the uh, on the Facebook page for the for the file for this episode. So go Heck look. Yeah. At it. One of my favorite con experiences was meeting Walt and Louise Simonson at uh, one of the Boston Comic Cons, one of the early ones for me anyway. And those two were just such a trip. He was doing sketches for free. He did a Hawkman for me. Did it in like. 30 seconds was really funny, really cool. Uh, you know, Louise was there chiming in, signing issues for people and stuff. Just two of the best people I've ever met at a con. So cool. And, and speaking of signatures, as you mentioned, even though this is Walt's first published work, you can see his iconic dinosaur-shaped signature worked into the lower left border of the first page of the story. He had that signature going from before he was even a pro. And it hasn't changed to this day. It's like shaped sort of like a brontosaurus the way he writes his name out. So I just, I just thought that was cool. I, I, I had no idea that he had that together from that early on. I'm, I'm glad you actually bring that up because I hadn't noticed, you know, because it's, it's kind of down the corner, hidden in with the gargoyles and bushes and stuff like that. I didn't notice that until you said it. So. Oh, yeah. He like uses the bottom borderline and turns it into his signature for a bit and then returns it to being the border of the panel. Like even as young as he was, he was already doing little creative stuff like that. So. I mean, we're, we're just, we're still just talking about the first page and the credits here, people. So I'll jump into the synopsis of the story because there's more to tell. Cyrano is the village idiot of Ville Sewell. And I think I'm saying that right. It's S-E-U-L-E. Every day, Cyrano leads an imaginary army through the streets with a wooden sword, helmet, and army jacket. The townspeople ridicule him and laugh at his antics, but the mayor thinks that Cyrano mocks the men of the battlefield, and the only thing he's good for is to clean the gargoyles on the town's cathedral. Saddened, Cyrano talks to the stone creatures, swearing he could lead an army in battle against the Boche, the Krauts, the Germans, if only given a chance. As if on cue... The Germans arrive in town, and Cyrano charges out and attacks them with his wooden sword. A woman begs the Germans not to kill him, saying that he is only a fool. So the commanding officer shoots the sword out of Cyrano's hand and commands the fool to entertain him. At the mayor's hilltop chateau overlooking the town, Cyrano later watches the Germans humiliate the mayor and knows the sound of cruel laughter all too well. When Cyrano asks the commander to treat the mayor, an officer from the last war, with some dignity, the officer kicks Cyrano to the ground. 
They laugh as they toss him his sword and helmet. Entertain us, fool. Show us how an army should be led. Are you Napoleon? Or perhaps Josephine? As laughter cascades onto him, hate fills Sereno with a rage so awesome it splits the sky. Thunder and lightning roll, and Sereno hears the whispered answer of granite wings. The windows of the hall explode as the gargoyles fly in, and Cyrano commands his army to destroy them all. The screams are heard clear back in town. In the morning, all the Germans are dead. No one will admit that they saw ten winged forms fly back to the cathedral when the screaming stopped. But Cyrano knows, and he's the greatest general of all. So that's the end of that one. And uh, we have a little bit of Killjoy was here in a history minute coming up. What a lot of people don't know is that the southeastern half of France wasn't occupied by Germany after France surrendered in 1940. Vichy France was a collaborationist state that took all its orders from Berlin, named for its capital city, Vichy. When the primarily American armies landed in French North Africa in Operation Torch in November 1942, they were facing Vichy forces. After some covert negotiations and a half-hearted resistance, the French either surrendered or switched sides. Germany occupied Vichy France soon after, probably as a direct result of such a lackluster performance. So Ville Soul on the southeast on the south coast of France, spared by the ravages of war until the Germans arrived. Hey, it looks like we have a rough date on the story when the story takes place. Yeah, and, and just to the, what you just mentioned about the occupation, my wife and I actually just learned about all of this. We just finished watching a seven-season show called Un Village Francais on Amazon Prime, and it detailed the onset, the duration, and the aftermath of the German occupation of France, focusing on, of course, one village in particular. And I learned so much watching that show, including that not all of France was occupied. And I learned about the entire, the, the term Vichy France and all that, finishing that series just before we read this issue. So that's pretty good timing. It's, it's also how I, I learned that Boche was a French term for, you know, slightly derogatory term for the Germans or an equivalent to the word kraut that we would use. So that was just cool. Like, I, I'm like, hey. I actually know this stuff now, you know, and I actually had some background, you know, information that helped me with this story. I'm like showing you all the history stuff off the get go. Yeah. So for my part, for comments and commendations, Walt Simonson's art here is far more confident and stylized than I would have expected from such an early effort, even from him. It's so loose and borderline abstract in some ways as to remind me of another oddball favorite artist of mine, Scottish artist Cam Kennedy. Now, he worked on Judge Dredd and Rogue Trooper, but would be perhaps most well-known to American readers as the artist on the Dark Empire Star Wars series from Dark Horse Comics back in 91-92. The similarities to Cam Kennedy's style here are so striking that I have to imagine that Kennedy was a major influence on Simonson when he was coming up as an artist. Uh, as for my favorite touch, it's gotta be the border around the first panel of the final page of the story. Instead of a panel panel border. It's just the letters of the screams coming from the Germans as they're getting murdered by the gargoyles. It's just all around the entire border of the panel. Again, that experimentalism that Simonson shows not only in the style of this art, but like the way he worked his signature into a panel border. And then what he did here with an entire panel made up of lettering or entire panel border made up of lettering. So just 
way more than I would have expected from a first effort by anyone. It's, it's, there's a reason the Walt Simonson is so great, and you can see it all right here. That's me. Yeah, like, like I've uh, already said before, I, I bought this book with the Toth's signature already in it, and then I got Simons, Simonson to sign it later on. So this, you know, this this is going to be, you know, this is this is keeper book. You know, this this one isn't going anywhere. This is going to stay in the archives forever. My my favorite sequence is uh, when Cyrano charges the Germans with his wooden sword, screaming at them to leave, and his reaction when his sword is shot out of his hand with a single shot, it stares at his empty hand and stares at the smoking muzzle with this well hell expression <laughs> it's it's sadly comical because that's happened to all of us he tried to do the right thing and it instantly goes wrong now, hold on let me call my wife over she can tell me what what time it was when that last happened to me also in the uh, side random trivia category it turns out that walt simonson was one of the revelers at an asgardian banquet in the movie thor so there you go yeah i mean I, I, as as a huge you know lifelong comic nerd and like someone who was very into the walt simonson run on thor in the uh, in the 80s i mean that first issue of that series hit my neighborhood of comic nerds like a bomb it was just like oh my god thor is the most incredible book marvel is putting out right now one issue in so i was looking for that i had heard already that they gave him a cameo in that movie and you know that's the least they should have given walton i think i think wheezy's in that scene too i think his wife is at the table and that's probably scene, don't i'm not mistaken but I, I wouldn't even know where to look for him yeah i mean <laughs> He just jumped right out at me, like, because I was sitting there the whole movie going, where's his cameo? Where's his cameo? Ah, ha, ha, there he is, you know? So just well-deserved. Like, without Walt, I don't think Thor's series would have survived the 80s. I think that book was in trouble when they gave it to Walt because he was just allowed to do whatever he wanted. First issue, just had a horse-faced alien steal Thor's hammer and take his place in Asgard with the favor of Odin. Like, boom. Yeah, yeah. Beta Ray Bill, done, you know, and just off and running. So before this becomes a Walt Simonson's Thor podcast, (laughs) which I would turn it into if I was allowed to run rampant, we will go to, now that we're finished with the content of the issue, and as I said, there's no framing sequence here to to seal it off. It's just three stories and we're out. We're going to talk about our spotlighted ads for the issue and Rich will start us off. Okay, the the 1970s were the golden age of funny cars. The most damnedest designs were created. On the last inside page of the comic, we have the Snappet Roadrunner and the Beep Beep T and Wiley Coyote and Wiley Willie's model kits. Roadrunner is riding his and the Coyote is riding a skateboard and hanging on to his machine. It's just like, Beep Beep, here comes Roadrunner. And coming on with his BPT, the start of a great new kit series from MPC, the Roadrunner Snap It series. Just dig the big bird's bomb, a tiny T, a supercharged, supersized engine, and a super colossal spoiler to keep it all on the level. Beep, beep. Now, right behind it is Wiley Coyote and a Wiley's two wee for the heavy hemi. Two great new kits and a snap to build. No glue needed to gum them up. Get both now. Because there's more coming. Roadrunner kits from MPC. Beep, beep. <laughs> I'm having a hard time reading. <laughs> it's just like right after Bugs and Daffy. Who didn't love Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote? I mean, my dad would sit down next to me on Sunday morning to watch the Roadrunner and, and Coyote cartoons. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that's just, ah, 
70s. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, I would have loved to have these. And, and it's right up my alley because as a kid, I was nowhere near patient or coordinated enough to do an actual model kit with glue. I mean, I tried a few times and it was just a disaster for everyone. So a snap together model kit. Oh, I did a bunch of those because like I could handle that. And, and these things look awesome. And, you know, again, this is 72, so I was a year old, so I doubt these exact things were still around, but I kind of wish, you know, it seems like in the 70s, there were a lot of old toys kicking around. Most of my toys when I was a kid were hand-me-downs, and I'm like, man, I wish I could have gotten my hands on a couple of these, because they look really cool in that ad. I, I'm, I really dig it. And yeah, Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote, come on. That was like omnipresent in a 70s kid's childhood. So yeah, great ad. For, for my part... I got another one of those. See, it's strange to me, these old comics, they're marketed to children, but also to specifically as we're seeing a trend here, grownups who are really dissatisfied with their jobs. So we've got an ad that's called The Day Bill Told Off His Boss. And it's done up as a photo comic, or as they call it, a fumetti style piece with people posing for photos, but like comic book word balloons being inserted into it. And right away, the coolest part to me is, you know, maybe it's the way the page has aged over the years, but the boss that Bill is telling off looks like he could be Eugene Levy with a severe crew cut. So that just makes it funnier to me because I'm, I'm hearing Eugene Levy's voice the whole time. And it's a short little piece. You've got Bill getting called into the office by Eugene Levy saying, get in here, Bill. I want to talk to you. You punched in seven minutes late. I'm docking you an hour's pay. It better not happen again or else. And then Bill leans over the desk and he's like, oh yeah, I've got news for you, Mr. Bemis. I love that they gave the guy a name, Mr. Bemis. I've got a new job offer with a real future at twice the money. Bemis says, ha, anybody be crazy to pay you that much. That's what you think, says Bill. I've been learning electronics in my spare time at home from CIE, and now I can take my pick of good jobs. Bemis is like, you've got to be kidding me. You in electronics? Yes, now I've got a career. CIE made it easy. So goodbye to you and your crummy job. And it's at the end here, we've got, are you working for peanuts in a dead-end job? Get smart. Send for two free books like Bill did. So again, we've got this other market that they're appealing to of grown-ups and dead-end jobs who are reading comic books. And I'm not sure how insulted to be by that, like retroactively, like they're thinking, well, if a grown-up's reading this comic, they must be a loser. So let's appeal to, I was the, thinking fact, that. Yeah, to, to the fact that they're working some crummy job and trick them into sending away for these books. And so far, I think two in a row, it's about getting a career in the emerging field of electronics in the early 70s. So just an, an interesting little counter vein. We have the illegal animal trade that's been going on in these books. And now we have catering to people who can't stand their crummy jobs in line with you know the pages of gags and toys and you know sell grit and all that so it's an interesting ecosystem that's starting to unwind before us in the ads for these old comics so boom that's that's the end of the issue and the ads we got some final comments here i'll let rich lead off and well first things first is while you were talking i did a little bit of research and for the record andre the giant was french he died he was born in france and he died in France. So that answers that question. Gaston was his father. It's canon. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
personally, uh, I already, I've already said that this issue is a keeper primarily for who, who signed it, but yeah, I'm sorry, this issue really didn't do it for me. You know, ghost romance, insanity, and the village idiot that commands an army of gargo gargoyles. Nothing was horrible, but nothing really reached out and grabbed me either. I call this a not-so-great issue of Weird War. The Room That Remembered is my favorite story if I had to choose. See what they needed to drop like some some atom bombs on a city in the far future and you know get some post apocalyptic robots in there to get you back, you know? Well we'll see what happens in issue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So see now here it is, people. This is gonna be like crossfire, you know. <laughs> <laughs> now, I like this issue a lot, as was probably apparent as we were going through it. When I encountered this series for the first time as a kid with issue 68, Weird War Tales was pretty much a full-on dinosaur, vampire, space alien, action-a-go-go book. And this reminded me so much of the series that I really dug as a kid. So, yeah. Also, like I said, to point it out again before we wrap it up here, we were talking about how the framing sequence in the previous issue was bare bones at best and wondered how long it was going to stick around and not long not a framing sequence to be seen at all in this issue just dropped without so much as a by your leave interesting i'll i'll, I'll be I'll, I'll be looking to see if uh, it ever comes back or how soon it comes back because i think i remember them being part of the series again when i picked it up as a kid so it'll be cool to see how long it stays away now we've had some comments on our uh, first couple of episodes on our podbean site and on our facebook page and on twitter so i'd just like to go through and read some of those for y'all first of all on podbean we have luke jacanetti of the Earth Destruction Directive podcast, who says, Weird War Tales is the comic which got me into war comics. Really enjoyed hearing your origin stories as well as coverage of Weird War Tales number one. Keep up the good work. Tom Mix, good friend of the show, good friend of ours, uh, stops by to say good opening episode. And then Herm Germ, who uh, introduces himself in the comment, says, Hey guys, this is Herman from The Long Box of Darkness. I have to commend you for two fantastic episodes so far. Your podcast is the one I've been waiting for since before podcasts were even invented. Looking forward to more. I mean, you're here to hear first. We were the podcast that people have been waiting for since before podcasts were invented, and that person was Herman from The Long Box of Darkness. So on Facebook, Sir Martin of Gray, Martin Gray of the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog, stopped by and had a lot to say to us. So I'm going to read it off here. He says, congratulations on the first ever episode of your podcast. Sorry to be behind. I agree that the cover logo is amazing, but Tales looks like such an afterthought. I really don't think they needed that word in the book's title at all. And your own show masthead is wonderful. Who designed it? And of course, I tell him that Bill Walco of the hero business uh, designed it, and Bill is awesome. Martin goes on to say, Joe Kubert was an editor for a long time on those DC War books. How amazing to have met not just Joe, but Adam and Andy too. I met Bob Conniger at a UK con once when I was helping to look after the guests. He was every bit as much of a character as you would wish for. So there he, there you are, man, uh, Rich, uh, impressing Martin with having met and had met all three of the Cuberts. Collecting autographs. Yep. It's the thing I go for. Yeah, it's about the only thing I go to shows for anymore, really. <laughs> yeah. So Martin says the that many-headed transition in the Sea Wolf story is rather odd. Yes, but I like it. It's pretty cinematic. All the art in this issue was great, mind, especially the Qbert framing sequence. I never knew the origin of Kilroy was here. That's rather fascinating. In the UK, we called the guy Chad. Now. 
that's the first time I've ever heard of that. Have you ever heard, Rich, that they called Kilroy something else over I'm, in the UK? I might have at some point. I knew the whole backstory. I told you about how you know about Kilroy was here earlier, but how it actually got started started was the the just the general rundown was it, it goes back to when the ships were being constructed in the yards. They, they had to go through the, 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 the hulls and count rivets and crap like that. And you have the scumbag factor. People, they would write on the bulkheads in chalk, you know, the number and stuff like that. And sometimes, you know, because it takes time to count, people would go back and they'd erase the chalk, so you'd have to count them again and yuck, 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 yuck. Well, this one of these guys started going through the, the, the ships and when he was counting stuff, he would write, Kilroy was here, just to document that he'd been here. And these ships were just being produced, bam, 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 as fast as they could for the war effort. And the, the bulkheads weren't getting painted or anything else like that. So these ships are going down the ways, getting loaded up with troops and going to the four corners of the globe with Kilroy was here, written on the inside of these ships. So you get all these service members going, who's Kilroy? And they just start creating their whole, whole little thing around it. And it, they just took off with it. And at some point, the cartoon character, I, I believe, was British. There was, it was some sort of British cartoon character, a comic book icon or something that they incorporated with the Kilroy was here and the two came meshed together and it went from there. Oh, that's cool. I mean, we'll, we'll obviously look into it more. Maybe Martin will chime in later that maybe you brought up that the cartoon figure was an existing UK cartoon figure and maybe that character was called Chad in the original source. So. Awesome. Yeah, that could be. So Martin goes on to say, I really like the discussion of the stories, though I blanked out a tad on the technical talk. It never makes a blind bit of difference to me whether a tank is the wrong color or doesn't have the right number of rivets, so long as it looks right to my untrained eyes. It's like cars and comics or dogs. As long as they give me the impression of being cats or dogs or cars or whatever, I'm happy that the creators just get on with the story. Still, many listeners may love this stuff. So see, Martin's one of my, my people. He, he doesn't know any of this. But, you know, that's why we have Rich along to show us what we're missing and to point out in, in, the other levels. In, in the reenacting field, you know, people that get, you know, too, too deep in the weeds are called stitch Nazis. It's like, no, 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 that cup needs to have three rivets on it, not two. I mean, that, well, that's why it's, 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 it's Killjoy was here. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be that guy. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I'm all for it. And believe me, it's not just in your, in your field. Uh, my supervisor at work was in the 501st for a long time, like the, uh, the bunch of people that make their own Stormtrooper armor. So the Star Wars community has those people to the nth degree. Just how screen accurate is it? You need a vent port. It's three degrees off where it should be. Anything you could possibly imagine. So yeah, there's, those there's, people there's, are everywhere. There's a guy I know who, who got out of World War II reenacting, and he's jumping at me you know, both feet into 501st. And he, he, he posts photos all the time of him, you know, you know, putting blast damage on the armor and, you know, things on the belt and, you know, just like what you're saying. <laughs> so. Yeah. And I mean, the 501st does a lot of charity work going to like children oh, and stuff like that. It's great, but man, the, the nitpickers are thick and they are intense and God love them. They are, they're there keeping everybody in line. So Martin goes on to ask us, are you really planning to do all the issues? Maybe just do the good ones and those with a particular talking point or two? Ah, sorry, Martin, we're doing them all. We're doing them all until either we completely stop, disappear from the earth, or the Reaper takes us. 
Yeah, it's we're doing every single issue and more. We're doing and who decides issues. who the good ones are. Yeah, my favorite yeah. one might be the one that Max goes. Oh, I gotta do this piece of tripe. <laughs> this issue right here didn't do it for Rich and for me. Like, boom! This is my favorite one so far. I, I am, I'm, I'm standing on my feet, giving the ovation for this one. So Martin says uh, he tells us we were spot on that the text pages that were in those early issues were there to please the post office. There was some technicality there. He also tells us that Ed Heron went by the name France Heron. The non-war comics work he did was rather impressive too. Definitely check out his wiki page. So there's something for, for people to research. Ed Heron or France Heron, one of the artists from our previous issues, uh, has, has some work out there in non-war books as well. Now, Martin also mentions, we were talking about the spelling of goodbye with no E at the end. He said, that goodbye annoyed me too. I just assumed it was a funny US spelling a la midnight with an N-I-T-E. Apparently not. Anyway, Thanks again, Martin says, on to episode two. So all those comments were just from episode one from Martin. So we thank him and everyone else for listening, commenting, liking the stuff, just, just showing up here to join us as we cover, yes, every issue of this series. See, it's, it, it's funny that that goodbye comment is right there at the very, very end, because I don't know if you noticed it or not. At the very, very end of the ad that Dave Bill told off as boss. So goodbye, BY, to you and your crummy job. So bam, there it is again. <laughs> yep, I was actually waiting to bring that up until the end. So I'm glad you caught it too. Like, uh, and I, I didn't really catch it until I was reading the ad for the episode right now. And I'm like, oh. Oh yeah, Martin brings that up in his comment. We can work that in. So yeah, I, I sailed right by it when I was reading the issue for this episode. But as I'm reading the ad, it jumped right out at me. So there you have it, people. It's taking us a while to get to comments because we recorded a lot of episodes in advance. So we're way ahead of schedule. I'm sure that that will even out at some point in the future, life being life. But right now that's how it is. We will try to mention as many comments and, and, and you know, people who followed the show and supported us as possible. And again, thanks to everybody for being here. This is Max. This is Rich. This is the Weird Warriors podcast promising to you that we shall make war. No more.